The message comes to us today from Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 28. And it reads like this. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all ways that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all those peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up underneath the terabith that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, the stone shall be a witness against us. For it was heard all the words the Lord has spoke to us. Therefore, it will be a witness against you. At least you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his own inheritance. This is the blessed word of our Lord. So we continue this morning in our series called Hashtag Rethink, Engage in Technology Without Disengaging God. One of the things that we uh, learned last week and what you saw on the stage, uh, I'm afraid many of you can identify with readily. Uh, it perhaps is a regular occurrence in your own uh, living room. And uh, one of the things we discovered last week is with technology inherently comes culture. And so when we talk about how to engage technology without disengaging God, we are also talking about how to engage culture without disengaging God. And so uh, last week we uh, looked at the story of Daniel. If you weren't here, uh, you ought to go listen because you'll get some insights into chapter 1 of Daniel. But today we find ourselves with Joshua. 
the the book of Joshua is a uh, only covers twenty years. You may not realize that, but in those chapters, only twenty years are covered. The first uh, half of Joshua is conquest. The story that is most likely familiar to all of you is the story of Joshua and uh, the the battle at Jericho, that famous battle that uh, defies all military uh, uh, wisdom. And then there's battle after battle after battle, and they are victorious. Uh, The other half of the book is the allotment of land. Uh, They have defeated, they have won, and now the land must be allotted. And so it is allotted to all of the tribes. And we get to the end of the book of Joshua. If you remember the story of Joshua way back when, when he was a spy and he was sent into the land, he spied the land. And indeed, after spying the land, he, along with his friend Caleb, came back, offered a good report. And when they did, uh, the people listened to the 10 spies who offered the bad report. God judged them and said, everyone under the age of 20 will die except two guys, Joshua and Caleb. So what you've got to realize is when we get to the last chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua indeed is very old and everyone around him is considerably younger than he. And so he has a conversation. He draws in, brings in all the leaders of the 12 tribes from all of their allotted lands to meet at Shechem. Shechem is a fascinating place. It's the place where God has decided the tabernacle ought to be set up. Obviously, Jerusalem is not the capital city of Israel yet. And so the tabernacle is set up there. People come every year uh, for that yearly pilgrimage to worship. People come all through the year for different reasons to that tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, this remarkable place where they are going to worship. Joshua calls them there, and when he does, they uh, meet there uh, to talk about some things. Joshua reviews their history quickly. It is all of chapter 24 up until today's passage. He reviews the history of the Israelites. He goes all the way back to Abraham. Abram, when God called him out of the land of Ur in Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and Euphrates River, he talks about that. He talks about their trek into Egypt. He talks about their trek out of Egypt, down into the Sinai Peninsula, all the way up now uh, across the Jordan River. They fought these battles. And then God says this, we cannot miss it. It is so easy once the battles have been fought, once the victories have been won, to assume that we did it, isn't it? Look at this. He said, it was, God says, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Wow, look at this. You, you have all of this stuff now, none of which you got for yourself. You won battles I fought for you. Now, therefore, in light of all I've done, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods uh, that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. I want to deal with that statement for just a moment. You know, every week when I prepare sermons, I I learn something new every single week. I love that. 
I can't wait to dig into a text, discover what God has to say through the text. But when I read this, uh, you see, I think I'm with you on this, that always when I think back on Abraham, always I have him elevated in my mind. Even though I know some of the really boneheaded things he did, I still have Abraham on a position of of great awe and respect. He's the father of many nations. He took Isaac and offered him on the altar. There's a thought in me that Abraham must have been some kind of amazing guy for God to go all the way to between the Tigris and Euphrates and choose him for such a task. But that isn't the case. Notice what Joshua says. The gods your father served beyond the river. The river is the Euphrates River to which he refers. And the people are Abraham's descendants. You see, uh, God didn't show up to a faithful Abraham. And because of Abraham's faithfulness, choose him. God chose Abraham. And because of God's faithfulness, Abraham was able to live faithfully. That's important. That's so important. Um, if you go read in Genesis 31, you discover that Rachel... Um, Abraham's daughter-in-law is so consumed with foreign gods, she steals them out of uh, Laban's tent. 35, uh, chapter 35, just four chapters later, we see a Jacob saying, get rid of the gods. Gods are a real issue. Uh, The other thing that somehow missed me was that in Egypt, the Israelites worshipped foreign gods. So I did some digging. Leviticus 17 uh, tells the story also in Deuteronomy chapter 32. These people that God went to great lengths to bring out of Egypt, God didn't go get them because they were such stellar people. This will sink into you in a moment, I promise. But God didn't go get them out because they were such stellar people. They just happened to be his. Uh, They happened to be his people. In Egypt, they worshipped goat idols. Really, goats, I mean, of all things. In Egypt, they worshipped goat idols. Deuteronomy says that they worshipped demons themselves. Those are the people that God went to great lengths to rescue out of Egypt. Some of you sit here this morning and you have the idea, the thought in your mind that there is nothing good enough in me. You say, why would God look at me? There's nothing in me that he would see. And I say, amen. I'm with you in that. There's nothing that you and I have done that is good enough to cause God to come looking for us and say, Hey, uh, look at what they've accomplished. I'd like them. And so these people have been the recipient of a gracious God who, not because they're so good, but because he is, he's picked them up and lifted them out of uh, Egypt across the Red Sea, down into the Sinai Peninsula. They wandered around, the ones that are in Israel, don't forget this, they wandered around for 40 years and, and, and their shoes never wore out and God provided manna and he flew in quail. I mean, they've experienced this. And wouldn't you think after all of 
above that, there would be absolutely no problem with any other potential God, not so quickly. You see, they had a family heritage of idolatry. Uh, Tim Keller, whom I will quote a few times in this uh, message this morning, his great read called Counterfeit God says this, Idolatry is taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. Some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. I'm going to say this morning that most likely in every one of us in our heritage, there's some idol worship. I'm going to venture a guess that it isn't goats, um, that it isn't um, in our near history, uh, perhaps even demons, but there's idolatry. What might that look like? Uh, for some of you, it is reputation. You come from an astute family that has a a known reputation, and you raise your children by not God, but that reputation. They must live up to the family name in your mind and in your thinking. Reputation is the idol to which you bow and worship, and your kids know it. Christian isn't the number one name where your kids are concerned. It's your last name. Your reputation is significant for others. It's work. Your parents perhaps grew up quite poor, and so then they made something of themselves. You did too by working hard, and so work and success are God's for you. I think in our in our country, if, if there are God's that... that uh, we worship poor and rich alike. Uh, one is money. Uh, the poor worship it. I often am blown away by the greedy of the poor in their resentment of those who work and have. Uh, the poor in that become quite greedy when they uh, somehow think that those who work and have uh, are, are somehow diminished by a, an effective career. Uh, the poor will look at that and judge, uh, and then the rich in their wanting more. Never satisfied. There are kind of two avenues I've seen for that. There are those who have lots and spend a lot. Uh, you know what they have because uh, their possessions show their wealth. And then there are others who have a lot and don't spend a lot. And you don't know it unless you're really close to them because they hoard what they have. And dare you spend a dime of it, uh, you will, you'll suffer greed Greed, money, uh, but then probably sports. Uh, let me take probably off of that and just go for it. We worship sports in this nation in unbelievable ways. My son plays basketball. He uh, is the height to play. He's 13 and he just had his physical 
And last month he was 5'10", and this month he's 5'11". He wears size 13 shoes. He's a big kid uh, who appears is going only to be bigger, right? So he plays basketball. A couple Saturdays ago, he's playing uh, basketball. It's 8.30 in the morning when two moms start going at each other in a gym over a basketball game that doesn't matter. I look around the room. I don't see any future NBA stars. I see nobody budding into amazing grandeur and and playing for Duke or playing, uh, God forbid, for Carolina. I I see none of that, right? None of it. It's none of it is unfolding before me. But what I hear are two moms who are tangling verbally while their kids are playing ball. I leave uh, to go uh, be part of Montreat's graduation. I come back and when I do, uh, I go see Trent and say, hey, I'm back. And he's played a game since then. And he said, dad, you won't believe what happened. I said, what? He said, these two women, they got into it so bad. One of them got kicked out. And then he says, and the, uh, and then she, after she got kicked out, she came back and she said, she walked back in after having been kicked out in front of all of these kids. And she, he said, and she said to her, I'm going to bleep your bleep, your bleep. Isn't that nice? Basketball in Morganton, Morganton, uh, it's such a, a national scene. I know like. Great things come out of Morganton Saturday basketball. It's crazy. I think I would be safe in saying in McDowell County that hunting and fishing can be God's. I know I step on toes and I know I do, but, but hunting and fishing can be God's. I took Trent and a buddy of his fishing yesterday and uh, we were we were fishing and we fished for two and a half hours. And they're fishing to the left of me and they're catching fish. And I'm not. I drove like they wouldn't be there unless it's for me. And I'm catching nothing. I just continued to fish. And da- uh, Trent looks over and he says, Dad, what's the deal? And so after an hour and a half, he comes to my hole that I'm fishing in. He casts out. I've caught nothing. He casts out. Within five minutes, he catches one. I look at him like, who are you? And then he does the unthinkable. I lie you not. He's 13. I'm 47. I'm fishing. He looks and he says, all right, dad, the next one I catch, I'll let you reel in. <laughs> That's what I did for him. Like when he's three, my manliness is gone at that point. Um, hunting and fishing. But let me, let me hit home. Uh, let me tell you where I struggle. I struggle. I never played a sport in my life. It's easy, easy for me. I know to call that out. Um, I, I struggle academic achievement, uh, uh, grades, those kinds of things. That's that's what I did. A lot of education. I struggled with that. I I, I grew up with working, hard working parents. I I can easily make work a god. Easily, it's. I don't even have to think about it, you see. So I think we look at idolatry and we kind of say say that, but that's somebody else. But look at this. Um, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, 
you can't just scoot by that phrase. I want to suggest something to you this morning, and I want to say it uh, just on the authority of Scripture. You will either worship God holy or uh, W-H-O-L-L-Y, or you won't worship him. He, he doesn't take divided worship. It is either joyous in your heart to serve God and worship him, or it's evil. If you don't worship God, it's an evil act. That's what Joshua is saying. Idolatry is inherently evil. Why? Uh, Keller again, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. And if that isn't God, that is ultimately evil. So technology is taking taking that place. It's interesting, prior to this era of technology that we talked about last week, the object itself didn't seem to take on worship. It was what came through it. It was what you saw on television. But now there seems to be an inextricable link between the technology itself and what it allows and brings. You say, what do you mean? It's only recent, recently, in the last 10, maybe 20 years, that technology itself is inherently worshipped. Why? Well, back in the day, when your TV was this wide and this deep, people didn't come over and go, wow, what a TV. But today... When men especially get televisions, they invite their buddies to go over and go, check this baby out. A TV? Yeah. Listen to my speakers. Technology. Teenagers. It's phones. Isn't that interesting? If a kid's phone goes down, his life is over. Right then. Yes. Like like something happens. Something happens in panic-stricken faces on your kids. If the internet slows, your kids' anxiety grows. Technology in and of itself has taken on an entire uh, worship-like Quality. Apple, Apple has made billions off of the reality that status is now connected to what you carry. To the latest and to the greatest. Fascinating. If you go into the marriage arena, Facebook is huge. 80% of all attorneys uh, that mitigate and litigate divorce cases say that they've reported a spike in the number of cases that use social media for evidence. As a matter of fact, there's a 
fairly new website called facebookcheating.com where spouses are able to go who suspect their spouse of cheating on them via Facebook and discover ways to detect such cheating. Um, It's a new era. So what do we do as believers... Uh, we could stick our heads in the sand and, you know, say our kids will never, ever look at technology in their lives, but that won't work anymore. At some point in this world, if your kids are going to navigate it, they will do so with technology. So what do you do? Here's what Joshua said. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, that's Abraham's gods, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Just look around, he says, their gods right here. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you know what it means? It means that you will have to be often an unpopular parent. Often an unpopular parent. It means you will hear the the mantra of teenagers. Well, my friend's parents. And fill in the blank. To which you will respond, I'm not your friend's parents. I'm yours. And this is how it goes here. Provided that, unlike Greg, you're not doing it yourself, right? Right? And so the people answer, their answer is remarkable, the far be it from us. Look at this, uh, that we should forsake the Lord, uh, for it is the Lord who brought us out, they go on to say, uh, who did those great signs among all the peoples, and the Lord drove out, like they give God all the credit. And do you know what? Immediately my response would be, good job. And then what follows is what some commentators say is the most shocking statement in all the Old Testament. Check it out. The very next verse. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. What? Joshua? Did you not hear what they said? Oh, Uh, Yes, we know God drove us out uh, or drove the enemies out. God went before us. We know what God did. We know who God is. We know how great he is. We know how remarkable God is. And we're all in. And Joshua says, no, you're not. You can't even serve the Lord. He's not going to forgive your sins. He's holy. And he is jealous. Hold up. What about this forgiving God you've learned and known all your life? Who is he? Where is he? Is he this God that you know? Can we not come to him with a a repentant heart? And will he not uh, relent? And will he not forgive? Um, It's the next verse that clues us in to the real position of the... People as they stood, remember, these are leaders of the tribes. Uh, as they stood before him, the people, um, uh, or Joshua answers, 
uh, in the very next verse, if you forsake the Lord, verse 20, and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Do you know what their problem was? And I love you guys. I love you. But this is our problem too. We put God in our front pocket and our idols in our back pocket. And we hope to somehow celebrate him on Sunday. Hallow him. Hallowed be your name on Sunday. But hallowed be my fame on Monday. And hallowed be my wallet on Tuesday. And hallowed be my students team on Saturday. And hallowed be whatever it may be. And, and God will have nothing to do with that at all. Nothing. Why? Two reasons. Two reasons. He's holy and he's jealous. That's what Joshua says. What does it mean that he's holy? It means he's completely set apart from, he's different, he's other than. He is unbelievably, unbelievably distinct. So much so that some commentators believe angels to this day have not looked on him with their eyes. They'll base that on Isaiah 6 where the angels, the seraphim, have six wings. And with two they cover their feet. And with two they cover their eyes. And with two they fly. He's unbelievably holy. So much so that in the Old Testament or the New, when referring to God the Father, no one ever describes him. Uh, Isaiah described the train of his robe. That's all he could say. That's all he could see in another place in, in the first five books. So remember where it is of the Old Testament. When asked to describe God, the one who saw him described the ground on which he stood. He could not in any way describe God because... Because he is indescribable. He is completely other than. He is unbelievably holy and awesome and great and mighty. And there's, there are no words. He is unreal. He's holy. And there's nothing compared to him. There's no winning game, is there? There's no magic figure in the bank account. There's no new car. There's no academic degree. There isn't a big enough uh, uh, deer uh, trophy. Uh, there isn't uh, the long enough fish. Uh, there, all those things, all of a sudden, when we uh, think of his holiness, seem ridiculous, do they not? Yeah. They do. Our reputation compared to the matchless reputation of the one who is above all. Why? Why? He is holy. He is holy. Oh, I think we look at goat idols and go, you idiots. But I think if they could fast forward into our culture and go, orange hoop, orange ball. You idiots. I think they'd say. He's jealous. 
Now, when you hear the word jealous, if you're in high school, well, you know, it's a girl who's jealous because her girlfriend got, you know, the guy she wanted, and now they're mad at each other, right? And uh, that kind of petty jealousy existed among the gods with the little g and in their ancient stories of their fighting with one another, but not God. You see, God in his jealousy is described in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or earth uh, below beneath. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, how does God's jealousy roll out? It's not, oh, I'm going to take that other God out, right? He's <laughs> whatever, right? He's, he's not intimidated by any other God. He's jealous for you, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who, look at that word, hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's jealous for you. He's jealous for you like this. So let me try to frame this. If you're married and you love your wife, if you're married and you love your husband, then no other man ought to look at your wife in any other way except as a sister. Uh, I mean, that's it, period. Ever. And if you happen to be out with your wife and she's strikingly beautiful and you're on a date and you notice some other man look at her, you might with great, uh, great footing say to her, I didn't like the way he looked at you. You're jealous for her. That's good. If there's not some of that, she's disappointed. She wants you to fight for her. She wants you to love her like that. So it is with God. He's jealous for you. He, he's, he's jealous for you. Why? Every other God with a little g will make you a slave. Again, Tim Keller, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any discretion, betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. God is jealous. God is holy. So now the people talk again. And the people said to Joshua, no. That little word no is huge. It means by all means. Heaven forbid. No, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you're witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. Uh, Let me pause for one quick moment and tell you what that means. That means this. You, your changed life is your witness. That's your witness. Your changed life is your witness against yourself. That you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. That's key. How do you do this? Incline your heart to the Lord. Now we're talking. All of worship is a matter of the heart. It all is. It isn't enough for me to cause you to think today unless the Spirit takes what you're thinking and it travels the distance to the heart. This has been an academic exercise. You will leave with more knowledge 
But guess what happens? Scripture is replete with this warning. That knowledge will puff you up and render you farther away from God. It is a danger. A danger. Knowledge that does not lead to action but results in inaction leads to a seared conscience which leads to a numb life which leads to unchecked sin. It is dangerous. Incline your heart. It means stretch out your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said, the Lord we will serve in his voice, we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. He put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote all these words in the book of the law of God. There are just some boundaries. There are some practical things. So as you leave today, what we have provided for you, Adrian, uh, who introduced uh, 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 himself this morning or opened our service, our youth pastor has provided for you a list of what we call the Ten Commandments of Technology. Do you need those boundaries? You better believe it. So it's bright green. You'll see it as you leave. Just grab one of those as you go. But that's not all. So so we are witnesses against ourselves, but God is a witness to this covenant. Look at this. He took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. The terebinth is a large, most likely oak tree, the sanctuary, the the, the tent. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, the stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Can stones hear? No, not at all. Therefore it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. If stones can't hear, what does Joshua mean? It's just a visual representation. It's that every time you look at the stone, what should you think? Remember when we worshiped other gods? And remember when we said we wouldn't? That's what the stone does. I have a men's group we were meeting this week, and they, uh, they, they I lead this group, and they, they indulged me, and they let me go over the text with them. I love doing that. Their insight is so, so keen at times. And this is what occurred to me in that conversation. I wondered out loud with them. All right, so that was their witness, this stone that reminded them of this covenant that they had made with God, that he would be their only God, right? So what is it for us today? It's the Lord's Supper. The the Lord's Supper, the inanimate objects of bread and wine that speak every time we see them. They speak. And what do they say? Remember Christ. Remember Christ. Remember Christ. Our deacons are going to come and and they're going to prepare uh, to, to pass this down the the rose to you. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is jealous. He won't forgive. I go to one more quote from, uh, from Keller's book. And here it is. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. 
All you need is nothing, but that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to Him who's done all, I would add to Keller's quote, and suffered all. What does this mean? This means that the Lord's Supper for you and for me You see, I grew up in this super old-fashioned church. All right, super old-fashioned church. People just randomly testified. We, um, I mean, you just never knew what was going to happen. That's how I grew up. That's how it was. And we had one of these wooden tables down front. Some of you know where I'm going with this. It had King James language on it. That's all we were allowed to, to practice. And it had King James language on it. And it said four words. Do you remember those words? In remembrance of me. Jesus. Jesus. Before he was crucified, gathered disciples and took some bread and broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, you what? Remember me. You see, the stone was rather incomplete. Oh, it could bring up guilt, couldn't it? You go by the stone and the stone says, remember when you said you'd never do that? You did. But when you hold the body and that thought comes screaming into your mind like it has with some of you already this morning, remember when you said you wouldn't? Christ died for that. Then Jesus took the cup and he passed it around. Don't forget that Peter, who would eventually deny him, drank out of the same cup. Remember, every time you drink this cup, there's a new covenant I'm making with this. My blood. Remember. So this morning, you don't have to be a member of grace to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, but you have to be a member, as you probably can tell, of God's family. Why would you want to take bread symbolizing a body that you don't believe was broken for you and drink Juice symbolizing blood that you don't believe was spilled out for you. I would say this to you this morning. If you're here, as this passes, it's heart check time, isn't it? God, is there any idolatry? Am I bowing down at any altars other than at the foot of the cross where all I need is need? 
So these men are going to pass it. If you don't feel comfortable taking it, just pass it by. That's fine. As you do take it, would you hold it? Don't take it immediately. Just hold the juice. Hold the bread. And then um, Dave's going to play softly. You do whatever you need to do between you and the Lord. And then I'll lead us.